my message for the morning. Going, going, gone. You may or may not remember, but some time ago, in Adventism, there was a year that was designated the year of the family. And in the conference where I was pastoring at the time, And in the conference where I was pastoring at the time, the family life director of the conference wanted to prepare a program that would meet the needs of the families in that conference. And so he sent out a survey to all of the churches to, to discover what the needs of the families might be. He uh, decided that if he knew what problems the families in the Adventist church were facing, then he could design a program that would help to bring some answers to them. Now, what kind of problems do you think might exist in Adventist families? Well, unruly children, unmanageable children, that's a possibility. Finances, not having enough money to go around. Maybe there's an absentee parent in the home substance abuse, alcohol or drugs. And these are problems that would mirror the problems of society. So maybe one of those problems would surface in this survey. And although Adventists aren't immune to those types of problems, not one of those surfaced as the major problem among the families in the church where I was pastor. You'd be surprised to learn that the number one problem of the families in my church was none of those that we've mentioned. It was a lack of self-esteem. Isn't that interesting? People in my church were simply not feeling good about themselves. And when I revealed this detail to my church board, they asked the Family Life Council of the church to set aside a Sabbath to deal with family life issues. And they asked me to prepare a message on the subject uh, that would address this issue, a lack of self-esteem. And that's what you're going to hear this morning. And from the very start, I want to make a disclaimer and I want to make a confession. The disclaimer is that I'm not a psychiatrist and I'm not a psychologist, and I'm certainly not an expert on the subject. The confession is that I wrestle with this thing myself. All of the personality tests that I've ever taken reveal that by nature, I am shy and retiring. I'm basically an introvert, and I don't relate particularly well to loud, pushy people. And I often do that by masking my feelings, often by using humor. So I'm pretty much in the same boat with many of the members of that church. And what this means then is that because I'm not an expert on the subject, and because I don't have the educational background in this area, 
you're going to hear about this matter from the perspective of a theologian. This is not to say that I think theologians are the only ones with the answer. I am not one of those ministers who uh, would counsel someone with a problem to avoid seeking help from a, from a professional in the field. You know, just go only to your pastor, let him pray with you, and everything will be all right. I'm not that kind. But it is to say that since my training is in the realm of theology, you're going to hear this morning a theological perspective on this subject. And I'm going to begin by discussing and defining the problem itself. And I'm going to suggest that just because we're Christians and just because we're Seventh-day Adventists, it doesn't mean that we are immune. In fact, I'm going to suggest, perhaps with a little tongue-in-cheek, that the opposite may be true. For I suspect that in some ways... We as Christians, and perhaps even a little more so as Adventists, have been set up to experience low self-esteem to one degree or another. And I say that because I suspect the Christian philosophy of life could easily lead us in that direction. For example, we quote texts that lead us there. Proverbs 25, verse 27, for man to search their own glory is not glory. It's not something you should be doing. And Romans 12, verse 3, for I say through the grace given to me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 5, we are told that if we want to be children of the Heavenly Father, we should, if we're smitten on one cheek, do what? Turn the other. And if someone takes our coat, we are to give him our cloak as well. And if someone asks money from us, it is our obligation as a Christian to provide it. And furthermore, we are to love our enemies, bless those who curse us, do good to those who hate us and pray for those who persecute us. And then add to, the fa add to that fact the fact that by nature we are sinful and evil by nature. And furthermore, since we live in Laodicean times, the Bible says that we are poor, wretched, miserable, blind, and naked. And then we even sing about it. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head to such a worm as I? Yeah. And I sometimes think that Adventism doesn't make it much easier. Especially that brand of Adventism that advocates absolute perfection. That brand of Adventism that is rigid and unbending and demands outward conformity to a set of rules and regulations which they have established as the norm for everyone. 
And the discussion about pride and outward display started very early in Adventist history. With the early pioneers, that discussion involved the wearing of hats, bright colored cloth, certain types of hairstyles, belts, flowers, especially if those flowers were attached to the clothes, feathers, leather, and rubber. Now, I don't know what rubber has to do with it, but bless your heart, you did not show up on Sabbath morning in the Battle Creek Tabernacle Church with any of these ornaments if you wanted to remain in good and regular standing in the church. And today, it's not uncommon that the focus is still on outward display. Maybe not so much now, and maybe it depends on the church uh, that you go to, but it used to be even more pronounced that a little makeup or a wedding ring is equated with pride. And so is a Mercedes or a Lincoln. I remember when I graduated from seminary and was going to be and was assigned to my first church, the brethren took me aside and said, Now we know you've been in school a long time and maybe your car is old and you may want to purchase a new car or a, a better car than the one you have, but listen, when you buy a car, not a Mercedes or a Lincoln, only a Ford, a Chevy, or a Plymouth, because we don't want you to be proud. And you shouldn't go to expensive restaurants or purchase the best in clothing because that all amounts to pride. But you could get by with a wristwatch because that's functional. Just don't tell anybody that it's a Rolex and you paid $15,000 for it. Don't do that. And I wonder sometimes how good we as a people then really feel about ourselves. When I was in college, I went to a field school of evangelism held in a major city here in the South. And the evangelist was interviewed one day on one of the local television talk shows. And I was interested in how the talk show host began his interview with the evangelist. He said to him, you have to tell me about Seventh-day Adventists. I don't know very much about them. The only thing I know about Adventists is they don't eat meat, they always look drab and unhappy, and they wear black socks. And I thought to myself, is that what people think about Seventh-day Adventists. Is that the impression that we've given to them? And maybe a better question is, is that what we think about ourselves? Have you ever heard anyone in the church say, well, I just don't tell people that I'm a Seventh-day Adventist because they'll think I'm weird. And if that's the perception that we've given to others, Maybe that's what our young people are given to believe, and perhaps that's why we lose so many of them out the back door of the church. At any rate, we're talking this morning 
about low self-esteem. And Christianity is not immune to it, and neither is Adventism. And apparently it is a problem among us in the church. It topped the list of problems in the church where I was pastoring at the time. And it may very well be a problem even today among some of us here. But how could we expect to escape? The problem is real and severe, and it's present everywhere in American society today. Pardon the phrase, but it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. And the competition is tough, and as much as you'd like to, it is almost virtually impossible to isolate yourself from that competition. Kids compete for grades at school. Salesmen compete for customers. Professionals compete for clients. Workers com compete for jobs. And in many fields, you're only as good and secure as your last success. And if you don't quite measure up, or if you allow the pressure of the competition to get to you, you then may very well be ripe for a good case of low self-esteem. And then we measure each other's successes. I have a relative, a close relative. If I were to introduce him to you, I can guarantee that within three minutes, he would ask you two questions. What kind of car do you drive? And how much money do you make at work? And so you see, you are only successful if you drive the right kind of car, have a certain amount of money in the bank, the proper position on the corporate ladder, and if you socialize with the right set of people. In Adventist churches and in Adventist schools, these are called cliques. And we have subtle ways of letting each other know how we measure up. In today's society, even in the matter of equal justice, if there is such a thing as equal justice, you have a better chance if you are a wasp. You know, you know what a wasp is, don't you? White, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant. Even the religious world has its measuring stick. And in some Adventist circles, you don't fit in if you don't eat right and if you don't dress right and if you don't conform to their set of standards. And in th those circles, unity means uniformity. I was pastoring a church in St. Augustine, Florida. And one Sabbath morning, as I was standing in the foyer of the church, a family came in, and it was obvious that they were visitors because they were uh, sunburned for being in the sun. The lady at the guest book stopped them and said, please sign our guest book. So the husband signed the guest book. The wife had on a sundress with a little throw over her shoulders. The father had on a, a pair of dress slacks and a sport shirt and a sport coat, but he didn't have a tie. 
And the two teenage boys, probably 14 or 16, I'm guessing, they had on a nice pair of slacks and a sport shirt, but no sport coat and no tie. The lady at the guest book said to them, you're visiting today. Yeah, we are. Where are you from? We're from Ohio. Well, do you belong to the Adventist church back there? Oh, yes, the man said. In fact, I'm one of the local elders. And the lady said to him, well, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist and if you're an elder in the church, then you know that you can't go into the sanctuary dressed as you are, that God will not accept your worship dressed the way you are. You need to go back to your hotel room, and sir, you need to put on a tie, and your sons need to put on a, a, a tie and, and wear a sport coat or a suit, and your wife should have something other than a sundress because the way you're dressed is not acceptable to God and you can't worship with us today. Go back to your room and change. I, uh, of course, ran out to the parking lot and caught them before they drove away. And I said, please, please, please don't leave. Don't let this woman have her will in your life, please. And the gentleman said, well, I know, Pastor, that there are people like this in the church all over North America and probably around the world. And if we were to stay, we would absolutely spoil her Sabbath. And we don't want to do that. We'll just go back to our room and have our own worship. And that's the problem. One of the standards that is always applied is the standard of appearance. And here again, television only exacerbates the problem, makes it worse. You only meet the measure of appearance if you are tall, good-looking, thin, your face is clear of acne, wrinkles, wear, tear, rust, and spindle marks. I just threw those last two in, rust and spindle marks. And your hair had better be shiny. Your teeth need to be capped. Your deodorant needs to work in 12-hour time segments. Your perfume had better cost more than $10 a pint. And if you meet all of those criterion, you had better wear designer label clothes. I remember another church where I was pastoring. The school was thinking about installing a dress standard, you know, a uh, uniform at the school for the year that was uh, about to start. And so the uh, discussion about it created more heat than it did light. We actually had to call a, a church business meeting so it could be discussed. And one lady stood up and said, if you require my child to wear a uniform, I'm going to take my child out of your school. How in the world will people know how much money I paid for her designer clothes. Do you remember when tennis shoes were 10 to $12 a pair? And it's not uncommon nowadays for kids to wear basketball shoes that cost two, three, four hundred $400 each. And have you ever seen any fat, ugly, wrinkled models on television lately? It used to be that airlines would fire hostesses if they got more than 5% overweight. And if you can't meet the perfect 
appearance standard, then what do you do? Well, once it came home to rest with me. I was playing old maid, sitting on the floor, playing old maid with my four-year-old grandson. And to give you a perspective, this was 30 years ago, so my grand, that grandson is now 34 years old. Playing old maid with him, and he looked at me and suddenly he said, Grandpa, I said, what, Jared? He said, Grandpa, you're old. And I said, what makes you think I'm old? And he said, well, Grandpa, your face has cracks in it. And so I said, where does my face have cracks? Well, he said, they start at the corner of your eyes and go down. <laughs> and so I said, well, Jared, what about Grandma? She's actually older than I am by 11 weeks. And so he looked at Grandma, looked back at me, looked at Grandma, looked back at me, and he said, no, Grandpa, that's impossible. It can't be. And so I said to him, Jared, go ask your dad what it means to be out of Grandpa's will. <laughs> but what do you do if you don't measure up? Well, there are eye tucks to remove the crow's feet, faceless, breast implants, breast reduction, hyposuction, tummy tucks. And if you're not into that or you can't afford it and can't hide from the voice and shape of the ever lovely model on television, you then may very well be ripe for a good case of low self-esteem. Is it any wonder that anorexia and bulimia are almost epidemic? Is it any wonder that the growth industries of today are spas and gyms and health clubs and plastic surgery? Is it any wonder that the second leading cause of death among American teens and young adults is suicide? Is it any wonder? Now, I've painted a gloomy picture. I know I have, but it's not a picture that is outside the spectrum of reality. There are a lot of hurting people in the world, and there are a lot of hurting people even in our churches. That's evident by the results of the survey that was taken. And I don't have all the answers. In fact, I have very few. But I can give you some theological insights which I think can help a great deal. Theological insights. So I offer three theological perspectives for your consideration. Number one, Romans 12, verse 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Which is simply to say that you do not have to buy in to the current prominent philosophy, a philosophy that to some degree has invaded the church, a philosophy that says you are not valuable unless you measure up. You don't have to accept that. That's not a biblical concept. 
You read nowhere in scripture that God doesn't accept you unless you meet a certain standard. That's not biblical. In fact, in one church where I was pastoring, I was greeting people as they were coming in. We had a break of, of the people who uh, were coming in, so I thought, I'll go downstairs and see what's happening in Sabbath school. I wa went downstairs, and uh, there was one of the teachers in the cradle roll department, and she had a little boy outside in the hall. The other teacher was directing the cradle roll class, and I got down there just in time to hear her say to this little boy, if you're not good in Sabbath school, Jesus won't love you. Jesus won't love you. And I've heard over the years, 40 years of ministry, people say that same thing to members, to brothers and sisters in the church. If you don't dress this way, Jesus won't love you. Go back to your room and change. If you don't eat this way, Jesus won't love you. Go back to your room and change your diet. If you don't take off your jewelry, Jesus won't love you. Go back to your room and get rid of your jewelry. But that is not biblical. In fact, the opposite is true. God accepts us just the way we are. He accepts us just the way we are. Romans 5, verse 8, But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were dressing improperly, while we were eating improperly, while we were doing improper things, Jesus still loved us while we were sinners and died for us. Man may look at our outward appearance and judge us by that, but God has a different standard of judgment. Man may look on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Romans 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I'm here to tell you then that he's given to the church a ministry of reconciliation. And the church ought to be about that work. When people are hurting, when they're not feeling good about themselves, when people are told by the world that they're the wrong color or they have the wrong creed or that they're too ugly or too fat or that they're too poor or too handicapped or if they don't dress right or if they don't eat right, the church ought to demonstrate that ministry of reconciliation. People ought to be able to go to the church and be told, it doesn't matter how you look. It doesn't matter how you dress. It doesn't matter what handicaps you have. It doesn't even matter whether you're liberal or conservative. You belong here. You belong in the church. And you're welcome here. And no one here in the church is going to hurt you. No one in the church is going to be cruel to you. No one in the church is going to say mean things to you. Nobody in the church is going to say mean things about you. Because all we have for you here in the church is love. 
and love will cover a multitude of sins. And if perhaps there are so many in the church that are hurting, maybe it's an indication that we haven't been as accepting and as loving as we ought to be. We need to demonstrate more that ministry of reconciliation. That was number one. Number two, theological perspective, number two, Mark 12, verse 31. And the second is like unto it, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than this. Which simply means that to love your neighbor as yourself implies that you should love yourself. And I'm not talking about self-adoration. I'm not talking about self-worship. But I am talking about a healthy respect for yourself that is based upon the fact that you are valuable, that you have worth. The concept of the church as a body or as a building speaks to that issue. It says precisely that every single part has value. Every single part is necessary. No one, no part is of any more value or of any more importance than any other part in a church. Every single part is essential to the structure. Remove one brick and the whole building is weakened. And shame on us for chasing people away because they don't eat or dress or look or think even exactly like us. The church should say to those people, you count for something in this world. You count for something in your family. You count especially for something in this church and in the sight of God, you count for a very great deal. If the cross tells us anything, it tells us that. Number three, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. There is a law of economics which is as true in the spiritual realm as it is in the business world. That law says that the true value of a thing can be calculated by the price for which it can be sold. Let me tell you a little story. I settled in one day to, uh, on a Sunday, Settled in to watch a football game Sunday afternoon. <clears throat> My wife decided to go to an estate auction. She wanted me to go, but being the strong, courageous man that I was, I resisted and stayed home. And she then told me that she was going to take the checkbook and I told her, just be careful about what you purchase and be careful about how much you spend. Later in the day when she came home, I heard her come in. I heard the garage door open, the car pull in, the garage door go down. 
I heard the kitchen door open and uh, close, and I heard her lay a package on the table. It was wrapped in some kind of bubble wrap. She came into the room where I was watching the football game and said to me, you'll never believe what I bought. You must come and see it. And so I followed her out to the kitchen where she unwrapped the prized possession that she had just purchased. And she was right, absolutely right. I would never have believed that she would buy that. <laughs> she opened the package to reveal a vase, a rather large vase, a vase that was in the shape of a swan. She asked me what I thought about this beautiful treasure, and my response was that if there is a difference between a vase and a vase, this is definitely a vase, it's not a vase. And furthermore, I said, it's the first time I've ever seen a swan struggling to become an ugly duck. <laughs> well, the next Sabbath, she had it, that vase filled with flowers and set right in front of the pulpit. But here's where the economic principle comes into play. If you're ever tempted to doubt your worth, go stand at the foot of the cross. Go stand at the foot of the cross and consider in the light that streams from Calvary the price that was paid to redeem your soul. The value of a thing is calculated by what it costs to purchase it. And perhaps then in the light of the cross, it will dawn upon you that you are of ultimate value because he paid the ultimate price for you. And I can picture in my mind, after the cross, I could picture Jesus returning to heaven and an angel coming up to him and saying, you gave your life for them? My wife said, when I asked her, you paid that much for that? She said, yes, I did. And isn't it beautiful? And I can hear this angel say to, to Christ, you paid that price for them? And I can picture in my mind, Jesus saying to the angel, yes, I did, and aren't they beautiful? Going, going, gone.